You are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Welcome, all you weirdos, Krakoan refugees, and everyone whose favorite sports team is still in the playoff hunt. It is time to put down your leftovers and prepare to receive an all-new, all-different 74th Weird Dose of X, the mutant member of your Weird Science Family Podcasts. I'm your host, Jason, broadcasting from the Wrong Turn Studio, perched high atop stately Weird Science Tower. And here with me live from what, what seems to be the aftermath of a soccer match is, is my pal Ruben. Ruben, have, have you been crying? How, how are you? I shouldn't have been so cocky <laughs> before oh, the game. No. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's um, part of the fun, right? Getting emotionally yes. involved is, is, is part of the fun. Yeah, it, it's the outcome I kind of expected. So what we're talking about is the Seattle Sounders loss to LAFC in MLS, which, you know, all five people care about. But What was the score? one nothing. Oh, a blowout. Yeah, blowout. The thing that really annoyed me about it was LA is basically one player. There's a guy on their team who's like the league leading goal scorer. Mm-hmm. And it's like, defend him right <laughs> that's what you should do and the goal is like basically him just sitting on the wing getting the ball with like no nobody on him and he just triples in and takes a shot and then they just bunkered the rest of the game totally oh, sucked well. there's like i don't know it's it's sort of like what you'd expect right like defend the best player or lose which is what other teams have realized the last few games well, we'll, we'll try to distract you from your, uh, your your little sports pain there by by talking about some Xbox today, and they're they're pretty good this week. No, no real stinkers, which is nice. Uh, today we're going to talk about Wolverine number thirty nine, Invincible Iron Man number twelve, and we'll finish up with Immortal X Men number seventeen. So that'll be two fairly quick, fairly straightforward books, and then one that's going to take a little more mental effort. So, uh, what do you say we ease into things by starting with Wolverine? That sounds good. This is Wolverine number 39, Last Mutant Standing, Part 3. Written by Ben Percy, art by Juan Jose Rip, colors by Frank Darmada, letters by Corey Pettit, and design, of course, by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. So this issue continues the series of team-ups that Ben Percy's been filling the series with as we wait for the final Sabretooth crossover arc. And this issue's teamer-upper is Black Panther himself, T'Challa. Now, Ruben, are you up to date on what T'Challa's doing these days in his e-viewing written series? Not at all. It was sort of weird. The only T'Challa experience I have right now is through Avengers, and it the characterization seemed very different <laughs> here and there. Is he, like, actually part of the Avengers these days? Because the last I was really yes. reading was when I was back, back with Jim, and he was kind of withdrawing from everything. But he's he's fully on board now? Yeah, Carol Danvers got him back on board, and he's basically filling the Batman role on the Avengers. Is they keep he talking wearing about the him same being... costume in Avengers? Not the one from, not from Wolverine, yeah. So okay. I didn't recognize that. He looks In Avengers, he has what looks like a standard Black Panther outfit. And this one looked a little more stylized, which was weird. In Wolverine, it seems like he's kind of undercover, right? Or like doesn't want to be out and seen as Black Panther. And some people seem to think he's not, you know, still active, which is bizarre because in Avengers, he's saving like world ending threats or stopping world ending threats. And he's very prolific and just out there. Yeah, I asked in the, the Weird Science Slack chat, and, uh, and Gabe told me that uh, Chala's not on good terms with the current government of Wakanda and that he's running around in this. Area called Birnin Tachaka, which is where we see him in this issue, trying to stop a gang war. But you don't you don't really need to know that to enjoy this issue. It's a very straightforward adventure story. Now, yeah. one weird thing of this issue is that no one recognizes Black Panther. Not Logan, <laughs> not the bad guy. 
even though yeah, his he's still running around wearing a skin tight black suit with cat ears and cat claws. He's got a couple extra accessories, right? This Jedi looking cloak, this colorful shoulder ornament. But I mean, come on, you're in Wakanda. You see a guy kicking ass wearing a Panther costume. It's Black Panther. Why is everyone so surprised? Very yeah, funny. That, that part does make me laugh. I mean, their whole iconography is just like Panther motif everywhere, right? <laughs> right. Maybe there is some miscommunication between a uh, writer and artist where Ben Percy thought that he was going to look more different than he actually wound up because yeah, Logan doesn't recognize him and Logan should really recognize him. Makes me feel a little better that this beer in Shashaka place is not a Ben Percy creation. Because I was like, this is like the hood. <laughs> like, why does Wakanda need like a slum a slum area? It's very weird. I saw it described. Gabe may have said this. Maybe I saw that somewhere else saying that it's like the Gotham City of Wakanda. So it's like kind of like the, the dark crime sort of place. So anyway, this is another action-oriented issue. Doesn't require a lot of deep analysis. Jeff Bannister sends Logan a text message about some Orcus funny business going on, this time in Wakanda, and Logan heads there to break it up. Uh, one neat element this time is that the representative Orcus sends to Wakanda is June Wei. Now, you, you recognized her, I presume? Ben Percy's other story, right? Ben per- yeah, <laughs> that was uh, the character we saw in X-Force, the woman who was yeah. briefly Chronicler's next target after letting go of Colossus. Now, I'm not sure when this story takes place in her personal timeline. Do you think this is... Before or after she's kidnapped by Mikhail? Hey, good question. It's got to be before. I still laugh though. Remember they were saying she was she's everywhere in Orcus. <laughs> she's always she's always on the side in the background. They said it would have been cool if these had been published in the other order, right? Like yeah. we kind of seen Junwei in Wolverine, and then she showed up at X Force. I think that would have been more effective. But you know, publishing schedules are what they are. She doesn't seem in the background here. She's like doing yeah, she's pretty prominent. I mean, conference. Well, Sending somebody to Wakanda, is seem, would you think it's a pretty big deal thing for Orcus. And so she goes to the official government. She wants to buy some vibranium in exchange for a, a stark sentinel and probably some cash. Now, Prime Minister Folosade tells Orcus to go pound sand. So Junwei instead hooks up with a black market smuggler dude named Kovu. It's a, a weird bit here where Kovu tells Junwei, hey, I know you're here for the vibranium. I don't have any vibranium, but could I interest you in some nice cobalt, lithium, and titanium? Now, why do you think Ben Percy made this switcheroo instead of just having Kovu selling black market vibranium? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of true to character, right? Like, Wakanda never gets rid of its vibranium. I guess I, I was it seems fine with unnecessarily it. complicated. And then we get some nice banter where they're saying, don't give me your scraps. and then But then she goes along with it. Yeah, this guy's like, hey, you need this, this metal right for your sentinels. Which is weird because I would think that Orcus has other sources, less dangerous sources for cobalt, lithium, and titanium. If you if you want to smuggle something out of Wakanda, you want vibranium. You don't want you don't want cobalt. Just weird. After the reforge exploded, <laughs> they're desperate. <laughs> Maybe that's it. They need desperate for cobalt. Uh, so Logan gets into a fight, gets rescued by T'Challa. Who? Yeah, he comically doesn't recognize at first. And the two then ride motorcycles and violently break up the smuggling operation. Logan brutally kills a nameless Orcus goon to death, but T'Challa stops him from murdering June Wei. Her leg is broken from foolishly trying to kick Logan in his adamantium thigh ball, which is, you know, that's kind of funny. So June Wei and the smuggler wind up in Wakandan custody, and Logan winds up in possession of an Orcus fighter jet thing, which he hot wires and flies off in solo. Lots of skills that Logan. He can hot wire a fighter jet. We're not quite sure where he's flying off to next, but the cover of the next issue shows him side by side with Spider-Man 
in what will be the last of these team-up issues. So uh, not a whole lot to say here. It's nice to see the continuity between the Percy books, having Jun Wei show up, still enjoying the, the fine Juan Jose Rip art, which we will see more of in another book this week. Yeah, if you just want to read a fun Wolverine story, he teams up with Black Panther, he gets into some fights, you can pick this book up all on its own. You don't need to know anything about the larger story, which is a positive for some readers, but you know me, what I'm interested in is the larger story. And this isn't as crazy, wacky fun as some recent Wolverine stories, so for me, I'm at a 7 out of 10. It was fine, nothing to write home about. How about you? Yeah, I think your summary is pretty accurate. I, in my mind, it's a 6, just because you could easily skip this and you're not missing anything, but it, it was adequate. I didn't get annoyed reading it, and it's kind of fun seeing Wolverine hanging out with Black Panther. Yeah, I just give it as, I'm thinking of like just somebody just picking up this book five years down the line, you know, from a shelf somewhere. You could pick it up and read it and have a good time without having to know anything about Orcus or the Hellfire Gala or any of that stuff. Okay, that was Wolverine. Now on to Invincible Iron Man number 12, Patron Saint, written by Jerry Duggan, art by guest artist Ig Guerra, colors by Brian Valenza, letters by Joe Caramagna. Now, on the surface, there's not an awful lot of X-weighted content in this issue, but there are some tantalizing hints of things to come. So let's see what we can find. We start off with some Rhodey content. That's nice. I uh, can't forget about good old Rhodey, the guy that Tony dragged into a scheme that wound up with Rhodey in prison facing murder charges. Oops. His lawyer is Jennifer Walters, a.k.a. She-Hulk, because, of, of course it is. This is a Marvel book. The other option would be Matt Murdock, but he's busy at the moment being a priest running an orphanage. Things complicated over in Daredevil. Jen tries to get Rhodey's charges dismissed, but the judge rules for the prosecution, causing Jen to trash her own rental car and throw it several blocks away. Now, Jen claims that this should all be covered by the rental car insurance she bought, and I'm not sure that's how that works, Ms. Waters. Hmm. How, how about yeah. you? Is that how, how insurance works? You can break no, your own felt, stuff on purpose? I, yeah, I felt insulted by that. <laughs> Any sort of intentional damage is not covered by insurance, but I'm also fine with the idea of like, she could just afford a replacement car if she wants. Sure. I, I did worry about where it lands. I mean, she doesn't really see where it's going, so I don't know. I hope, I hope everyone's okay on the other end. Uh, I did notice a boxed flower shown prominently on the judge's desk. One that looks kind of a lot like the Orcus logo. Now, no one in the book mentions it, but but there it is, right on page three. Uh, I wonder what's up with that. Did you notice that little flower on his desk? Is it called a desk or the thing in front of a judge? His his bench. Maybe bench is what I'm supposed to use. Um, nope, I, I didn't notice that. That looks like a keepsake thing, right? Like a... Like a Lucite cube memorabilia sort of thing. Cube, yeah, that you put something in. That's it's strange. just the same shape as the Orcus Orchid. So I'm yeah, about, no, is I, that supposed to I, indicate I, he's got a connection? He's under their thumb? Yeah, I, mean, I think that's what it indicates. But interesting, because yeah, they they show it twice, but it's only in like the second panel that he's that it's more prominent. That's a weird thing to have on your desk. I would think so. It's a very uh, very Georgia O'Keeffe looking thing for any any art fans out there. So now it's time to tag along with Tony as he first uses his Mark Nil stealth suit to put trackers on some sentinels, and then goes to the Hellfire Club to have a chat with Fisk. Fisk reminds Tony, and us, that he's enabling Tony's shenanigans here only because he wants his wife back. Last time we saw Typhoid Mary, she was, Ruben, I think the kids call it dry-humping some other dude in the Realm of X book. Remember that scene? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, Fisk is a lot more eager to reunite with Mary than she is with him, but that's a problem for next week when we finish off that Realm of X book. 
So now on to the main meat and cheese of the issue. Riri shows up to the club because Tony asked her to come help him. Now, Tony didn't think to mention this to Emma. So Emma, dressed as Hazel Kendall, meets Riri at the door. And Riri doesn't think to mention to Emma, hey, Tony invited me. So, yeah, once again, we get one of those silly comic book fights that could have been avoided by either party or Tony acting like rational adults, you know, for 15 seconds. But, yeah, it is a fun fight. I got I to admit, you know, it's fun to watch this, even if it's silly that it happened. Riri has those Mandarin rings, remember? So she activates one to try to use some mental hoodoo on, well, she doesn't know it's Emma Frost, which goes about as well as you'd expect. Now, guest artist Iguera has a grand old time drawing this of-the-mind battle between Riri, who is just learning to use her new jewelry-based firepower, and Emma, who is one of the most powerful mental combatants in the Marvel Universe. So yeah, Riri is totally outclassed. Uh, what did you think of this fight here? Yeah, it was adequate. It was it was fine. I was kind of annoyed about just the page length of it, given that it was just, uh, you know, oh, nobody told the other person that they were going to meet up there. It was silly. It does have some larger implications in the story. It's not like it's just a fight that happens and then it's as if it didn't happen. Because the problem is that Emma had to take off her own mutant power-hiding ring to join the battle, which attracts the attention of a sentinel. Uh, Riri, Emma, and Tony team up to take down the sentinel, with Riri using some pim particles to shrink the sentinel down to the size of a McFarlane figurine, which the two ladies then stomp to bits. Now, I'm going to break with weird science tradition by being a little pedantic here, but uh, shouldn't a sentinel shrunken down by pim particles still be absurdly strong? Isn't that how pim particles work? Isn't that Ant-Man's whole thing? Yeah. Oh, well. That's true. I thought he actually got stronger, right? Like compressed strength or something like that. Something like that, but it shouldn't be. You can now just kick the Sentinel to pieces. Oh, oh well, it's, it's fine. It was a fine fight. They defeated the Sentinel. I'm okay with it. Just made me say, hmm, for one quick second. I did like how Fisk helped clean up the PR problem. He smacks his own face with Tony's Mysterium walking stick and blames his injury on the mutant assassin Mystique, who he says, that must have been the one to trigger the Sentinel's mutant detector is Mystique. Now, everybody's blaming things on Mystique lately. First was Firestar, yeah. the X-Men title, and now this. I was okay with that, but then, you know, the scene where he's sitting in the ambulance giving his statement and you see the Hellfire Club in the background, it's like got a big gash in the front, right? Like, what would Mystique do that would cause that sort of damage? Well, that was the Sentinel responding to Mystique, maybe. Okay. I don't know. That shouldn't people be like, what happened to the Sentinel? I mean, it just seems like once you think about it, it gets Questions annoying. Questions will be asked, but it's. I thought it was an okay diversion. But but yeah, there, it's, it doesn't totally explain everything. Um, yeah. But I do think it's funny that in two Jerry Duggan books, X-Men and uh, Iron Man, people blame Mystique for stuff. I thought that was kind of funny. So now it's just uh, time left to plant a few seeds for future happenings. Tony and Riri designed some, quote, ships. Tony wants Riri to be in charge of fabricating those ships out of Mysterium, and he sends her off somewhere. Now, here's a quote to think about. Riri, the lives of everyone on this planet depend on you successfully fabricating those designs. If we can't get them home, we won't have enough firepower to finish this on D-Day. Now, what is he talking about here? This, uh, a lot of possible. Well, there's one big possibility, right? I mean, this is going to be the plan for how Orcus gets taken down. Is that how you read this? Yes, but I was hung up on this idea of fabricating things using Mysterium again. Like, what are they doing to smelt it? 
and how much do they have? We did worry about that last time because how do you melt Mysterium? How do you forge Mysterium when it's the most you know, impervious thing ever? But here he does send her to work with an extraterrestrial smith named Eitri. Did that name stand out to you? No, who's that? Well, Eitri is a dwarven king and weaponsmith, mostly known for making a certain little item called Mjolnir. Okay. So he's a pretty heavy hitter. If anyone can forge this wacky metal, it's yeah, going to be yeah. him. So we're, we're bringing in some major okay. Marvel okay with that Yeah, yeah. Okay. Kind of cool. So then we get a, a one-page Thanksgiving dinner in the Morlock Tunnels, you know, which is nice. Good timing there. Uh, characters from X-Men and Uncanny Avengers are there, as well as Tony and Emma. The telling quote here is Tony saying, one way or another, come hell or high water, we don't have too much longer in the shadows. So again, Jerry Duggan signaling that this phase of the mutant story is nearing its conclusion, which we know because, you know, we look ahead and see advertisements and solicits and things, but it's nice to get this acknowledged in-universe that stuff is wrapping up. And on the final two pages, we go back to Rhodey in his Texas prison. A guard passes along a medallion sent through his lawyer. The guard calls this a St. Leonard medal, which is a real-world thing, St. Leonard being the patron saint of prisoners and other stuff, too. But Rhodey calls it his St. Anthony Medal, which I'm pretty sure is the first and last time anyone will use the word saint in reference to Tony Stark. When we see the medal, it looks like the saint is wearing Iron Man armor, or maybe War Machine armor, as I'm pretty sure this is just a set of armor for Rhodey, shrunken down with those pin particles so as to get it into his hands. Love pin particles, love armor. I don't know how Rhodey is going to make this back to full size again. There's a, in case of emergency break glass feature, but that'll be fun to see happen soon. Did you, uh, you read this the same way, I guess? And that's where we leave it. Not mind-blowing, but another pretty fun issue. The Emma Riri fight was fun, even though it was, bo- even though it was both pointless and destructive. Hey, we're comic fans. We like pointless and destructive. The hints that things will be coming to a head soon are very welcome, and leaving Rhodey with an emergency set of armor, also some fun stuff. With that much fun, some nice fill-in artwork in both real-world and of-the-mind modes by Iguera, I gotta give this book a more than respectable 8 out of 10. Did you enjoy it as much as I did, Boobin, or did you not get so much? <laughs> I feel like negative Nancy here. I, I thought it was okay, but I can't go above <laughs> well, you're, 7. You're just in a sour mood for reasons we don't need to get into. Exactly. Maybe that's it. Yeah, it was fine. Yeah, it just... It was more, my sense of it was more like, not a lot happened. A lot of page count was just kind of an unnecessary fight that I don't know what the point of it was, other than it's just comics. And some suspended disbelief stuff about people not asking questions about the Sentinel and um, the Mysterium questions about whether they're going to be able to forge it, how much do they have, that kind of stuff. So it's all right. It's fine, but um, not my favorite issue. And did you end up on a number there? Uh, Just a respectable seven. Seven. Fair enough. I I can certainly see that. I like the little connections. I like the hints we're going to wrap things up. I thought that bringing in a, an Asgardian kind of connection with Eitri and just this idea of, oh, where's this Mysterium going to be? What's she going to do with it? Oh, we're going to have this maybe fleet of Mysterium vehicles attacking Orcus. I had enough fun just playing that out in my mind that I, I bumped it up. But I can certainly see where you're coming. Okay, now on to our third, final, and most complicated book of the week. Most most impactful, the most important book, I would say, for our, our story here. This is Immortal X-Men number 17, The White Hot Danger Room. Written, of course, by Kieran Gillen. Art by, again, Juan Jose Arip. Colors by David Curiel. Letters by Clayton Cowles. Designed by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. So this is the penultimate issue of Immortal X-Men. 
confirmed by Kieran Gill in his newsletter. Although the upcoming X-Men Forever looks to be a semi-continuation, or at least a, a spiritual sequel. And as we've grown accustomed to since the gala, this issue continues two separate narratives. One with Charles Xavier on Krakoa, the other with Hope, Exodus, etc., in the formerly mysterious setting that we now know to be the White Hot Room. So we're going to split these up as we've been doing. So first we're going to start with Charles. He's been defending the island against Orca's incursions. Uh, well, at least in this book he has. In some other books, Orcus is crawling all over the island, but let's ignore that for now. When one landing party shows up with technology shielding them against Charles' telepathic suggestions, the professor switched over to using his telekinetic powers to rip those invaders to pieces. At least that's what we thought we saw, but then Charles denied having done it. At the end of the last issue, we saw Charles get a surprise. A note left on a mirror, placing a diamond on his reflective forehead, and with the text, don't kill yourself, please. So let's find out what that's all about. In the first scene here, Charles is given an odd thought balloon, drawn like the ones he gets when he's using telepathy to send a message to, like, Emma. But he's not talking to Emma. He's talking to... Is this the sinister side within himself? At first, I thought maybe it might be him talking to the actual minister, Mr. Sinister still inside the pit. What What do you make of this? What's actually going on here? I feel like it's one and the same. It seems like Sinister in the pit has some sort of, you know, mind technique that's allowing him to, you know, from the pit control Charles. So I think he's talking to whatever that happens to be that allows that connectivity. But I, I, I wouldn't think that the Sinister in the pit doesn't have this information. Yeah, it's it's hard to tell. It's not super clear to me because we know that if there is a sinister side inside one of these mutant guys' brains, they're not always just controlled by Mr. Sinister. We saw that in Sinister Sinister when things got way out of hand for him and he lost control. So I'm, I'm not quite sure. I mean, uh, the first thing we learn is that this is a day-night thing. Like a vampire, Charles' sinister side only comes out at night. And I went back and checked that scene where Charles killed those goons, Immortal Number 15, pages 18 through 20 in my digital edition. And sure enough, that has clearly taken place at night. And now cool. I kind of want to go back through every issue since Sins of Sinister and see if there are other nighttime scenes where in retrospect we can say, oh, that was the sinister side of Xavier in control. But definitely that one. Pretty cool. Now, back in this issue, Charles or Xavier declares to Sinister that by sunset of this day, which looks pretty close, one way or another, you will be gone. Uh, it's It does look like dusk, and Charles is looking over a steep drop-off, so you know what he's considering here. But he's open to options. He asks Sinister, can you provide an alternative? And that's when the Mr. Sinister, I'm going to call it a Force Ghost, shows up offering an explanation. So here's what the Sinister Force Ghost tells Charles, and at this point, with one only one issue to go. I think we're supposed to take these words at face value and, and not sinister playing games. He says that Forge's cure to remove the sinister taint from the council members, that did work. Except for Xavier, because Sinister already had his hooks into Charles, dating all the way back to that Black Womb project at Alamogordo. We've talked about that project before. Charles's father worked there, as did Juggernaut's father, as did Mr. Sinister, and disguised as Dr. Nathan Milbury. That original storyline took place in X-Men Legacy 211 through 214, but showed up again in Immortal X-Men number 8, which was the issue where we saw the past interactions of Mystique, Destiny, and Sinister, and where we got our first glimpse of those pods where the four suits of Sinisters were born. So, very cool. Clearly, Gillen had a plan for the series from start to finish. He's not making it up 
meanderingly as he goes along like some writers like to. Did you uh, enjoy that connection? I did, yeah. And I remember reading those issues and thinking, like, why are we talking about this? It felt like wasted text, and now we get the kind of payoff, which is cool. Yep, it is. Uh, we find out that Sinister's hold on Xavier is weak, though. So weak that he can only act when Xavier is unconscious or asleep. So hence the day-night thing. Sinister invites Xavier for like a tour of his mind. Sinister really plays up the, you're so strong, Charles, and I'm so weak thing. So much that it makes me almost want to doubt his sincerity. Although it is completely consistent with Sinister's mindset the last time we saw him on panel, in Sins of Sinister Dominions, right before he gets pulled down to the pit, he's totally defeated. He realizes that some other Sinister won, and he just feels like a complete loser. So I think, I still think this is him being sincere. Should I be more suspicious of Mr. Sinister is a phrase I just heard myself say. Um, I took it at face value. Like, I believed that he was being sincere, which is a strange thing to say, <laughs> everything that we know. But yeah, I forgot that he was so defeated when he went into the pit, so... Yeah, I went back and read that scene again. It's the way it's written is completely the same. How we just talked about him being a complete failure. I'm nothing. I don't count. We just need to stop this Dominion thing. And, and here, Sinister's inner life, at least as far as Xavier sees, is cheap and shallow. Here's the quote: "You are full of broken glass, bad jokes, memes. There is no weight to you. You are barely a paper mask." I just think it's funny that Charles even knows what memes are. I. I don't know, does he collect, <laughs> you know, a bunch of rare Pepe's and, and, and things in his uh, Cerebro helmet? Yes. For me, that's hilarious. Charles Xavier and memes <laughs> don't go together. That kind of makes sense, though. Sinister is just a partial copy, after all. He's one man who's been split into four parts. Charles telepathically tells Emma that everyone else is in the clear, Sinister-wise, but he himself still has a bit of an issue. He doesn't explain. And now it's time for some Dominion chat. Sinister reiterates that he had tried to become a Dominion, but that someone, quote, one of the other Sinisters, beat him to it and kept him out. Now Sinister's main goal is to prevent that Sinister from becoming a Dominion. But is that how any of this works? Aren't Dominions outside of time and space, so if there is one there now, you can't undo it? How, how did you take this? I'm, I'm kind of confused. To say I don't really understand Dominions, I guess you're not really supposed to. But this point confused me. Yeah, I mean, they are outside of time and space, so it means that they should always exist. So the idea of like taking it out, I don't, or preventing it from coming into being, I don't mm -hmm. think that is coherent. I don't think so either, but there are some hints in the other side of the story that may provide a loophole. And we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. So Sinister knows of two of his peers. He knows about Dr. Stasis and Orbis Stellaris, but he says he doesn't know who the last one is. I guess that's right. Dr. Stasis knows who Mother Righteous really is, but Mr. Sinister doesn't. Does he really never find out about Mother Righteous, even through um, all of Sins of Sinister, the information that got sent back? I, I, I forget what he knows and doesn't know. I thought he did know, because I thought that she came and like taunted him in the current timeline, but maybe I, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Here, he's very clearly saying that he doesn't know who the, the last one is. And again, I think we're supposed to take him as being honest because he's backed into a corner. He has no other options but being honest. So that seems like important information. Sinister says that he felt compelled to try to become a Dominion, almost like it was programmed into him and his brothers and now we know sister by the real Nathaniel Essex. So that's kind of a, a weird little hint. Do you get anything else out of that? That was I thought that was an odd thing to say. That he was programmed? Just how, how compelled he felt. No. Something's going on there. So <laughs> yes. In the 
And the last scene in this strand, uh, Charles has a, a red diamond he's holding in his hand. He's at, at the beach. I didn't see where the red diamond came from, but it's another of Sinister's chimera-based gizmos. This one is a combination of Unus and Tempo. Boy, he loves using Unus in these things, uh, which <laughs> Sinister says will act as that well, it's, it's basically another one of those Okara gates we've been seeing in X-Men Red, right? It creates a portal to the place where Sinister says he and Charles need to be to take, quote, our first step towards stopping my evil fraternity. And that place is Muir Island, the site of Moira McTaggart's research facility. Hmm. What do you think he wants to go there for? Yeah. You seem to have theories to lay it on me. I, I, I really I do not don't. Do I'm, I'm asking... Level. Yeah. We, we've seen Muir Island pop up. I mean, it's really connected to Moira's multiple lives, right? She's been there in multiple yeah. time lives. That's where she was burned to death at one point. So, yeah, it, it does feel like it's trying to tie together Dominion Ascent and Moira's multiple lifetimes, which are two huge concepts from this book. And if they can be made to come together, that could be amazing. I don't know where it's going, but it's got a lot to think about. Uh, so that's... That's the Xavier side of things. Any bits from Charles and Sinister that uh, you think we should talk about before I move on? No, not really. I, I, I mean, I did find it interesting that Charles was willing to kill himself to um, kind of get out of Sinister's control, which was interesting. Yeah, it kind he of reminds like me he's of down. right. It always reminds me of oh, it was Aliens Three, which is not one of the better Alien movies, but at the end where uh, Sigourney Weaver kills herself because she has an alien stuck with inside her and she doesn't want to be that danger to the universe. It had that kind of yeah. Interesting. Uh, okay, on to the other strand of this book. As we undoubtedly recall, most of mutant kind portaled out of this year's ill-fated Hellfire Gala and ended up in this strange nowhere-no-when land that we now know to be the White Hot Room. We also now know that this is all bound up with Mother Righteous. We don't know what she's up to or, or why, but we're pretty sure it's not good for our friends and mutants. As we left off last time, Exodus and Hope were fighting a fake version of Apocalypse that Exodus has conjured up out of his own mind the way that Dan Aykroyd conjured up the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man at the end of Ghostbusters. Also, Jean Grey is there, kind of twice if we believe what we read in her own titular book. This strand of the issue is narrated by Jean Grey. Kind of. All of the narration boxes here are Jean Grey quotes from old issues, sometimes very old. And the narration boxes are printed in all caps, which is the way the words would have originally appeared. Just kind of a nice touch, right? I am so used to seeing the mixed case that we see in a lot of books these days, but especially these X books. So the all caps really does call back to the old school comic letter. Now, this is a concept that sounds cool, right? In concept, having these old quotes. I don't know that it really worked so well for me in practice. Did were you uh, were you amazed by these quotes, or did you get kind of tired of them? No, I thought the execution was dull. I, I stopped reading them. I mean, I think I scanned them, but I just really mm. didn't pay that much attention to what was going on. Yeah, I'm. I expect they're supposed to imply thematic connections with the current stuff, but yeah, I I kind of let my eyes wander over them and just didn't really didn't really absorb much. What I took from that was like Jean Grey is experiencing all time and space at the same time and that her mind is jumbled and that was basically it i'll go with that i do want to say that a gentleman named mark turetsky at uh, comicsxf.com he went and tracked down the source of each and every one of these quotes and even like 
put a screenshot of the panels they were taken from, which is pretty cool. So if you're interested, you should check that out. I'll uh, I'll drop that link into our Slack if you want to check it out. Or again, comicsxf.com. And uh, even Kieran Gillen linked to that in his own newsletter, which I thought was pretty cool. So the actual action in this scene, in between all those quotations, is that Hope and Exodus come to understand that they're in the White Hot Room. Uh, the fake apocalypse looks like he's about to pop Exodus's head like a grape, and the art kind of makes it look like he does pop his head like a grape. But then Hope flies in with the Phoenix Force, loaned to her by Jean Grey in the recent Jean Grey number four, and Hope destroys the fake apocalypse. The Jean Grey who was there physically seems to wake up and begin to understand the situation, but then she goes right back to quoting her greatest hits. Our next scene in the White Hot Room starts off as a nice conversation between Mother Righteous and Destiny. Doesn't stay nice for long, and I think we need to look at this conversation line by line, because this is a lot of meaning here. Mother Righteous tells Destiny that Hope and Exodus are back, and they found Jean Grey. Destiny Destiny says, hey, gee, that's odd. Uh, Jean Grey, ain't she dead? Uh, Mother Righteous escalates things quickly by pulling a dagger out, threatening Destiny with it, and telling Destiny some exposition about how they're in the White Hot Room, that being why Destiny's future-seeing power doesn't work. Here, there is literally no such thing as a future. And if you think back to the right before the Hellfire Gala, uh, Destiny said that she couldn't see the future, she just saw this bright white light. So, White Hot Room, there we go again. Mother Righteous says to Destiny, I'm worried about what you may have seen. And I have no idea what she means by this. Any any guesses? No. <laughs> Other than no, okay. everybody is um, always suspicious of Destiny. Yeah, and, and the word seen is in like bold italics. So it's emphasized and it, it seems like it, it should mean something important. But Maybe it's the whole idea of just realizing that she's playing both sides. Could be, could be. So Destiny, maybe just figuring things out herself, says, and in a small font, which I'm reading as kind of speaking quietly to herself, she says, outside time and space, it can't see me. So is the it here, that sinister dominion, is yes. being the white hot room, which is outside time and space? Maybe that's our loophole to defeat or prevent that dominion, which is also outside time and space? Oh, being in the white hot room? Being able to make decisions. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. I didn't consider that, but yeah, that would make sense. I, I think that might be how we get to defeat something that already happened and can't be undone because yeah. we're also in this weird dimension. It, yeah. That's pretty guess. cool, actually. I like that a lot. We'll, we'll see if it plays out. My theories, I'm about, I don't know, maybe uh, maybe batting about 250 in my theories, but we'll see if this one works. <laughs> so now Mother Righteous attacks Destiny with a dagger knocking off her mask. Destiny says, stop, Mother Righteous. You're a sinister, right? You have to stop. You don't know what you're dot, dot, dot. And then she gets stabbed in the chest. So how long has Destiny known that Mother Righteous is a sinister? She was suspicious of Mother Righteous going all the way back to her first appearance before the council. Yeah. But she never said, oh, you're Nathan Essex, Mr. Sinister connected. She never said any of that. Yeah. But she did get... Um, mystique and her to like flee the council, right? And go into hiding. So I have a feeling she she knew some of that stuff. I'm wondering why she didn't say it earlier. What what was preventing her from just laying it all out on the line? I mean, Destiny never just lays it all out on the line, so maybe it's just habit. Yeah. Well, she probably looked at different futures and picked the one that 
kept Mystique alive, right? Is that what she always does? I, I guess that's it. Uh, yeah, because we don't know what she knows about Mystique, because Mystique, did she, did she even know that Mystique was thought to have died? I'm not sure the order of things, what she saw before she went through the portal. I have to check that out. Yeah, I don't think she knows anything about what's going on. So Mother Righteous is now not interested in any more conversation. Although she very conveniently for us, she keeps talking her motivation out loud, which is kind of weird, but kind of has to happen so we know what's going on. She says, I need to finish you off, hide the body so they can't bring you back, and then, at which point she's interrupted by the arrival of the young winged mutant named Cuff. Mother Righteous then cashes in the remainder of her Cohen thanks by saying, thank you, Mother Righteous, backwards. Which, we've seen this before, I think just the one time. Uh, it's kind of how she uses that thank energy that she's stored up from people. And this... Well, it seems to just make this part of Krakoa all angry and uh, shoots his giant, giant thorny vines all over, kind of, kind of creating a diversion. Is that all that's going on here, or is this magic power doing something else I'm missing? Yeah, I didn't get anything more than that from it. Yeah, it, it felt like there should be something deeper going on, but it seems to be just, hey, look over there, it's a diversion. So young Kafka goes and narks on Mother Righteous to Exodus and Hope. They know that the violent situation must be a Mother Righteous diversion. But they can't do anything about that other than try to deal with the vines. Oh, and by the way, Hope no longer all phoenixed up. That wore off. So Mother Righteous takes advantage of the diversion, not by finishing off Destiny, but by kidnapping the still-confused Jean Grey, who still has a chain around her neck. You'd, you'd think they would have taken that off by now. Uh, Mother Righteous says to Jean, you look like someone who'd like to be somewhere else, right? Want to go there? Which sounds like a pickup line in a bar, but I guess is also how Mother Righteous deals with Jean Grey. Uh, the two of them march off into the desert, with Jean leading the way like a dog being taken for a walk. So where are they going? What is Mother Righteous's plan? Do you have any any theories here? Because I got kind of nothing. That's why there's a lot of interesting stuff that's going on in this issue, but it's hard for me to speculate as to what, what I'm supposed to think is happening. Yeah, we only have one issue left of this series but we know not everything is going to be wrapped up in this series. We have the rest of Fall of X to do this, including all the X-Men Forever issues that Kieran Gillen's writing. So at the end of next issue, will we see the Dominion situation dealt with? I'm going to guess no. Uh, will the mutants still be trapped in the White Hot Room, or do they get to come back, possibly to be part of that whole D-Day thing that Tony Stark was talking about in Iron Man? I, I kind of hope that we get out of the White Hot Room at the end of this ish next issue. I do want to see that wrapped up. Do you, do you think we're going to get that, or am I hoping against hope here? Yeah, they have to get out of the White Hot Room. It's not that interesting of a place. Even if it's only at the very, very end of the issue, I want to see them back in the regular 616, back in the regular real world with everybody else. I, so yeah, I hope we get a satisfactory resolution to some of the plot points. I know we're not going to get every. So uh, big picture, it is fun that both strands of this book end kind of the same way with an oddly paired set of characters heading off on a journey. One pair being Xavier and Force Ghost Sinister, going to Muir Island, and the other being Mother Righteous and mentally altered, no longer quite dead, Jean Grey, going off into the desert. So, yeah, I'm sure that's not a coincidence that's Kieran Gillen, you know, doing some literary things here. He's a good writer. So, uh, to wrap things up... Uh, oh, Ruben, anything else you want to add about this whole Mother Righteous, White Hot Room set of the book before we talk about you know, no. wrapping this whole thing? Yeah, no, let's wrap it. Okay, so uh, the Juan Jose Reap art here is is different from what we've previously seen from Lucas Werneck. It's, uh, 
I think the best word for it is it's noblier, got these extra little details and squiggles, uh, less idealized forms and faces. I do wish that Wernick had been able to do every issue of this series, you know, just so it would be a, a consistent, coherent unit with a, a visual language that is the same from start to end. We don't get a lot of that in Marvel these days. And I just kind of wish it had happened. But if we had to have a guest artist, well, you know, Juan Jose Reap is pretty damn good. You know, he, he does a fantastic job. Cannot blame him for the scheduling issues. The flashiest scenes he gets to draw here are the apocalypse fight. But I think my favorites are the early pages where Xavier starts talking to Sinister. I really love the way that he draws Krakoan nature. It's near the end of the day, and it looks like autumn, which, again, I'm sure is symbolic of both this title and the whole era nearing its end. And it it just looks great. I would I would like to see him draw some more just hanging around Krakoa with the weird flora and fauna. I think he really gets that. So the only part of this book that just didn't work for me was that narration box shtick. It feels like Kieran Gillen started off with a gimmick of having to have a different character narrate its issue, and now he's he's stuck with it, even when the issue doesn't really benefit from it. Do you do you happen to read his newsletter, Ruben? No, I don't. Uh, so he's always interesting. He has a bunch of stuff talking about his his role-playing game things I usually skip over, but he always has a couple of nuggets about what's going on in X-Men world. So this week he writes, quote, By this point in the exercise, to keep the narrator conceit of Immortal, I have to play some games to make it fit the story. And also he then says, quote, There's narrators in X-Men Forever, but I'm using them in a different way. Or I have in the first issue. We'll see what issue two turns out like. So it sounds to me like Gillen himself is more than ready to give up this, uh, rotating narrator gimmick yeah oh well i'd laugh if the series is ending just because he's like i got i gotta get out of this and <laughs> write a regular story sometimes you start a running gag and you don't know how to get out of it uh anyone who wants to read anything into my opening gags of the podcast with that feel free i think i still have fun with them uh, so that bit i didn't care for uh, this stuff I skip, but Exodus keeps making these distorted biblical references left and right. I'm getting kind of tired of that. Uh, but the rest of it, really intriguing, and I, I hope we get a satisfying conclusion. I want to see these two strands of the story come together, and they, they've got to. So some really cool things here. Had a good time reading it. It took me a long time to go through and find all the connections, which I mostly think is a bonus. I love having a really dense book I can rip into like this. And so I'm going to give Immortal X-Men number 17, and oh, I'm going to go all the way to an 8.8 out of 10. Wow. So, uh, <laughs> Ruben, am I, am I so, going a little too crazy here? Yeah. I'm so negative, Nancy, this week. I'm just going to say <laughs> 7.5. I, I liked seven, it. 7.5. Okay. But so much of it, I just kind of like ignored the like lots and lots of text boxes with like past issues. It's like, good job. You read a bunch of old comics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, 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 again, I love the, the process of thinking about, oh, what's going to happen next? So he, Gillen puts in all these places that make me think, hmm, that could happen, that could happen, oh, this could be crazy. And that is one of the things I love most about reading these, you know, week to week, month to month comics, where if you're reading something retroactively years later, you have the whole, you know, trade or omnibus in front of you, and just turn the page and see what happens. I really love these in between times where we honestly don't know and can't know what's going to happen next. For me, that's that's a big chunk of the fun. So we had no stinkers this week. Uh, all issues were at least pretty good, maybe to really good, depending on how you feel about your soccer team. So will our luck hold up into next week? He said, hopefully. 
Uh, next week we have, hmm, we have Ms. Marvel, The New Mutant, number 404. Okay. We have Realm of X, number 404. All right. And we have X-Men Blue Origins, number one, which is the whole retconning Nightcrawler's parentage story, which may appear here or maybe something that Jim and I do on the Marvel podcast. But it'll be somewhere. I'm thinking maybe I'll ask Jim to let us keep that book on the Weird Dose podcast next week. So, Ruben, you and I will have something worth talking about. Because, again, I think that'll be really tied in with continuity in a way that maybe Jim won't be so crazy about. Uh, you think I should think I should try to twist Jim's arm that way? Yeah. I don't think he's going to complain about that at all. <laughs> I think I'll be able to convince him. Yes. Uh, well, uh, so, Ruben, until that time when people find out when that uh, book is going to get discussed, what do you think our loyal listeners should do with themselves? Yeah, got to read more X-Men comics. 